Hello, everyone. This is Sarah from Hamilton. Uh, today, I am uh, very excited to bring on uh, Ken Griffith uh, for a discussion in a series of discussions on the chronology of the ancient world and the way it relates to biblical historicity. Uh, I encountered Ken through uh, his work uh, on chronology uh, that has been put on academia.edu. Uh, and I was very much struck by the precision of the methodology, the uniqueness of the approach, and I found it to be quite compelling, especially relative to the state of chronological research today. So Ken, uh, welcome to the channel. I'm honored. Thank you, Seraphim. So uh, tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into this subject, uh, and what your broad kind of take is on how we should be going about this. Well, okay. Oh, I was raised in a Christian family. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, let me start that over. <laughs> I was raised in a Christian family from childhood and grew up reading the Bible and was fascinated with the Old Testament and especially the, the history of the Old Testament. Um, later, I went to university, got a science degree from Virginia Tech, took some engineering classes, and as an adult, I became fascinated with um, some of the apparent problems with ancient history and reconciling it with the Bible. So um, I had read some books by a guy named Emmanuel Velikovsky, as well as um, there was a website called specialtyinterests.net, where a number of uh, gentlemen who were interested in, in trying to solve the, the problems of ancient history had basically were, were posting articles there. And this is back in the 1990s, early days of the internet. And um, while working on that, I had started to come to some of my own conclusions. Um, but around the year 2010, I was introduced to a gentleman named Daryl White, who was a retired computer engineer. And he had written a series of papers on the chronology of the ancient world. And when I read his papers, I recognized that he apparently, he seemed to have solved the problem that I could see a lot of other people had been trying to solve. Um, but his communication skills um, were somewhat lacking. And so um, I offered to rewrite his papers for him to try to get them published. And that formed a partnership and uh, we've been working together on that project since 2010. So it's been about 13 years now. And um, I don't have credentials. I am not a history major. I'm not an archaeologist. I am just a layman who loves the Word of God and reads a lot and is very interested in solving the problems of history. So tell us a little bit about the history of chronology in the Christian tradition. Uh, where does this discipline come from and uh, how does it come down to the present in terms of its importance? Um, script, so we start with scripture. It, within the Bible itself, there's chronological data that goes from about um, obviously creation down to the time of the destruction of the first temple and then the return on the return decree under Cyrus. And then there's a lot more debate as to whether the chronology of scripture spans the gap from Cyrus down to Christ and the second temple being destroyed in AD 70. Um, some Christians think it does, some think it doesn't. And um, I personally believe that you, the Bible itself references the chronology of the other kingdoms like Rome and Persia so that you cannot compute that chronology unless you use information from Roman Persia in order to, to set it in its proper uh, position. So we have the, the internal uh, chronology of scripture, and then we have around um, the 4th century BC, after Alexander the Great conquered the Middle East and Egypt, um, you had two different cultures that were trying to convert their histories into Greek. That was the Babylonians and the Egyptians. So the Babylonians wrote a history of their chronology. Uh, a priest named Barosus wrote it, and he wrote it for um, the king of the Seleucid Empire, which was one of the pieces of Alexander's empire that had broken up. Um, and then the competing kingdom were the Ptolemies in, in Egypt, the family called the Ptolemies, and their empire was called the Ptolemaic Empire. And 
it was the Ptolemies, um, specifically um, Ptolemy Philadelphus, who was the second Ptolemy. He um, organized the Library of Alexandria, and he wanted his scholars to translate all the knowledge in the world into Greek so it could be housed in his library. So he sponsored um, the, the writing of the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, and it was apparently perhaps not the first time, but the first major published edition was done there in Alexandria. And supposedly it was 70 rabbis who came together and, and worked on that project. Um, well, at the same time, you had an Egyptian priest named Manitho, who he wrote the um, Egyptian history. And his was somewhat of an answer to the history of Barossus, because Barossus had made it look like Babylonian history had lasted 36,000 years from the flood until um, the the rise of, uh, I believe it was Alexander Theos, who was the king of, of the Seleucid Empire that he dedicated his book to. And so uh, Manitho, he made it look like the Egyptian civilization had lasted 36,525 years down to the time of Alexander. So effectively what he was doing is that he was outdoing Verosis. Um well, the rabbis who translated the Septuagint also apparently kind of fell into the same um, uh, competition because the Septuagint was the second um, of the recensions of scripture where we see the addition of number a large number of years to the chronogenealogies. And in one of my papers on this subject, I've made the, made the argument that they did this because they knew that the flood had occurred when the equinox, the vernal equinox, was in roughly in the Pleiades constellation, which is on the on the edge between Taurus and Aries. And so they knew astronomically when the flood had happened. But the Babylonian and Egyptian estimate for the rate of prece precession of the equinox was about um, one degree per century. But the, the true value is actually about 71 and a half degrees per um, sorry, one degree, one degree in 71 and a half years. So you could back calculate how many years it was to the flood if you measure where is the, the vernal equinox today and uh, measure the number of degrees between that and the Pleiades. And then that gives you the number of degrees that you multiply by the number of years of the rate of precession, and it will tell you how many years ago the flood happened. So apparently, in my view, and the view of um, Isaac Cullimore, who first published this theory in 1835, the scholars of the rabbis, basically, who translated the Septuagint, used that same um, method to add time to the Old Testament in order to make the flood to be at the right time uh, astronomically that the uh, so that they would be viewed as correct by both the Egyptians and the Babylonians. So that's kind of like our modern problem with um, Christians wanting to reinterpret the Old Testament in a way that is compatible with like evolutionary theory, for example. Um, at any rate, so Manitho, he writes this history of Egypt and he what he did was he listed dynasties. Uh, the first dynasty reigned in Thinis, the, uh, the second dynasty also, and then the third in Memphis. He, he always lists the city where these dynasties reigned from. And he lists 31 dynasties down to Alexander, from Menes, the founder of Egypt, all the way down to Alexander the Great. And so if we add up all the reigns in those dynasties, they come out to 35,525 uh, no, years um well early christian um historians simply took manitho and they read those dynasties in a series going back um to calculate you know events that happened in the past and that was how we got our first um effective uh attempts at integrating the Bible with ancient history. And Josephus did this. Josephus basically used Manetho. And apparently, I'd say that Manetho himself, he obviously lived in the in the third or fourth century. Um, by the first century, I think his work had kind of been forgotten, but uh, Marianne Luban says that there was a gentleman named Ptolemy of Mendes, who's mentioned by Sincellus. And he apparently 
either him or someone else who was a Greek speaker, he republished Manetho using, and he added in the notes, synchronisms to Greek and Bible history. And he clearly, whoever is the person who did that, they simply interpreted Manetho as a straight chrono chronological list. Um, but the problem is we found a lot of evidence and even mainstream scholars somewhat believe this. Um, Manetho's dynasties were city dynasties, and some of those cities were reigning at the same time with their own kings. Sometimes it was kind of like Ireland, where you have a high king and low kings. Um, other times, you effectively had parts of Egypt were independent from each other. So the problem that we run into is um, if you take a serialized list that was intended to be parallel you end up multiplying the timeline and everything gets out of sync. And I'm going to share my screen with you and show you um, a couple of examples that will help visualize that. All right, let's see. So here's an example of, let's say that each of these represents a dynasty. You've got dynasty one reigning in some city, dynasty two, three, four, and five in different cities. So these have their own timeline and history. Like if you were thinking about, say, um, the states in America, if you imagine D2 was Virginia because it was the first one founded, but Massachusetts was founded later. Um, however, if we did a timeline for, um, say, a Midwestern state like Minnesota, its start date might be 150 years later than the, the list of rulers of Virginia. So you have an event that it happens, say 400 BC. Of course, this would not be American um, dynasties, but these would be, say, Egyptian. So let's say you have an event in 400 BC, and you've got five different cities who have kings. And this event is recorded in the history of each of these dynasties. Well, now if someone takes your history and writes it out as a list, and then other people interpret that list as a series, what happens is you've now taken those dynasties that were parallel and they've been stacked as a series. And your original event, 400 BC, will match for one of the dynasties, which should be still accurate. But you'll see um, echoes or duplications of that event, or phantoms as I call them, um, at previous states in history. And the offsets will also vary between 350 to 1350 years in this particular case, but it's going to depend on the relationship between those dynasties and their histories to each other. And this is effectively what the Christian church did, or really starting with Josephus. This is what was done with Manetho's history. And so we stretched out an Egyptian history, and then we try to peg the Bible into it. And of course, that's going to result in um, uh, massive distortions. And the same thing happened with two other king lists. The Sumerian king list and the Babylonian king list are also using the same style that Manetho did, although technically they're both older. They both predate Manetho. So um, you might argue that he used their style. But whatever the case may be, we have three different sets of historical data that have been serialized, and the result has been History has been stretched out by thousands of years. Are, are you suggesting that uh, Manetho himself intended to serialize the dynasties or that this is a misunderstanding of Manetho um, by later interpreters? Um, I would say that Manetho perfectly understood what he was doing. And I think that he intended for the initiated priests to know the truth. Um, but I think that he also was deliberately deceiving his audience, um, who were the Greeks, because he wanted to he wanted to make Egypt seem older than Babylon. So I think for him it was like an inside joke. Gotcha. Yeah. So after Josephus, we had Eusebius, who was he was probably the main um, father of church history, writing in the fourth century A.D., and he he basically used the Septuagint chronology. And then after him, Sincellus wrote around um, between, sometime between 1000 and 1100 AD in uh, Byzantium. And then 500 years later, you had uh, Bishop Usher in Ireland, uh, in Protestant North Ireland. He published his Annals of the World. And interestingly, he used the Bible passages to 
basically uh, use scripture to determine the actual chronology from creation to Christ. But then he used Manetho's linear chronology to peg Egyptian events to Bible events. So he, in our view, uh, he ended up getting virtually every single Egyptian date wrong while he got the Bible dates pretty accurate. Um, and then since his time, so Usher's chronology was the standard in the King James Bible and was in the notes of the margin notes of lots of Bibles all the way up until about the 1950s. And then there was a, um, a gentleman named uh, Edwin Thiel. He was a, a Seventh-day Adventist scholar, and he wrote a book called The Mysterious Numbers of the Hebrew Kings, in which he tried to synchronize the Bible's chronology of the divided kingdom with the Assyrian king list. And he was really following Albright in um, a number of his choices, but Thiel, he basically said the Bible must be wrong <laughs> that Hezekiah and Hosea of Israel lived at the same time. And so obviously he was not coming from a biblicist position of the Bible being uh, infallible or inerrant. Um, and his chronology basically reduces the time back to Solomon by about 45 years. That's not a huge gap, but it's enough to create some problems. And so all of the modern academic seminary chronologies follow Thiel. Um, so the current, I guess, luminaries in the field of chronology would be um, Dr. Steinman and um, uh, Finnegan. And um, I think those are the two main ones. And they've done some good work, but they are their method is they rely on the uh, chronology of Carthage and Assyria to tell them what is the real chronology of the Bible. And in my view, um, we really should start with the chronology of the Bible and let it shine the light on Egypt, Carthage, and Assyria, because we don't really know the, the chronologies of those ancient kingdoms nearly as well as uh, academia seems to assume. So that's, that's kind of where we are now. So um, tell us a little bit about then the rise of this conventional chronological scheme within the academy. Um, you know, when does this develop? How does it develop? Um, and what's its impact been on perceptions, both scholarly and popular, uh, of biblical historicity? Sure. So you had Manethos. He's got this long list of history. Um, and then you have Eusebius, who kind of integrates that together, and Josephus as well. Um, that gave us the original ancient history within the Western civilization. Uh, it really came down to us through Eusebius. And when we uh, started digging up cities in the ancient Near East and learned how to read Egyptian uh, and learned how to read it, cuneiform, Akkadian, um, Sumerian, instead of going back and reviewing all the information we had and building a new model, what they did was they just tweaked the model that we had. They just took Eusebius effectively, and then you know start squeezing Egyptian uh, kings in there. And then when we start finding stuff in um, Babylon and Sumeria, they just tacked it on to the, the uh, tacked it on to the beginning, you know, stretching the beginning back further. And then really they um, then they added their uh, evolutionary ideas of the Stone Age. It gets tacked on in front of that, and then the Paleolithic. So what we ended up with is the academic chronology is kind of a um, an amalgam of a bunch of different sources that was never done systematically. But here's where we are now. Oh, we have a new discovery. Let's tweak it to add this in. And in in my view, um, that has created something that doesn't agree with the Bible at all. And then we also have the problem that since um, about I guess 1900 um, archaeologists in Israel have been digging up all over the the whole country, and I should I should say Palestine, but for, we they've been digging up these sites and building their stratigraphy and building their uh, chronology, and the the more they dig and the more they study it, the more they say that Moses and David never existed. Um, Moses obviously 
being around 15, between 1500 and 1400 BC, depending on which chronology you use of the Bible, and David being somewhere around um, between 1050 to roughly um, 1000 BC, depending on which chronology of the Bible. Um, what they're expecting from the Egyptian academic chronology is that David should have been contemporary with the end of the 20th dynasty of Egypt, which would be uh, at the end of the late Bronze Age, really the Iron Age one. And then Moses would be um, basically late Bronze Age because he's usually correlated with either the 18th or the 19th dynasty. So they dig and they don't find what they're looking for in the Iron Age. They don't find uh, that what they find in the Iron Age is the land had basically been depopulated. During the Bronze Age, there's tons and tons of people living in, in the region that's now called Israel or Palestine. But so just, just in, for, um, for our audience, could you just clarify the relationship between uh, archaeological ages and then what we would talk about in terms of chronological time? Sure. So archaeology used the three age model of Stone Age, Bronze Age, Iron Age. And they say they basically put the end of the Iron Age around the time of Alexander the Great. And they say that it started around, I think, 1300 BC, 1200 BC. And then before that was the Bronze Age. And in their system, each age is divided into three. So there's Bronze Age one, two, and three. Uh, well, they would call it early, middle, and late Bronze Age. And then each of those is subdivided into three. So you've got late Bronze Age, one, two, and three. And um, effectively, you've got the Bronze Age lasting from 3000 BC down to about 1300 BC. And then they have the Stone Age before that, which they have coming from 12,000 uh, 12, BC down to about 3000 BC. Does that clarify the question? Yeah, for you? yeah. So um, okay. the, the, the stratigraphy is about just developing kind of an internal classification system for what you find in the ground, but you can take those ages and you can date them to different periods of time. Right. And of course, they built their, um, their dating methods are usually carbon dating. They have a couple of other ones, um, dendrochronology using tree rings. And um, they have one called thermoluminescent dating. But to calibrate one of those types of um, uh, measurement systems, you have to have two, two points. You have to have an, two known points, one near the beginning and one near the end. And preferably, a lot more points would be better. So the more points you have to calibrate with, the more accurate your curve will be. But they had already assumed that Egypt was founded, you know, the first kings of Egypt were around 4,000 BC when they calibrated these systems. So carbon dating effectively has been calibrated wrong. <clears throat> it's not that carbon dating is a bad way of estimating age. Excuse me. It's simply that they had already assumed they knew the age of the things that they tested it on. And then the resulting system has built into it the bias if, if they were wrong about the age of the things they used to calibrate it then their system is consistently going to reflect that error and people think oh it's carbon data we know how old it is well only if you were right about the original calibration points and i think they were wrong so that's a problem but that's not really what we're talking about in this this um interview sure so uh, uh tell us a little about a bit about why um, it's a Christian imperative to uh, seek a, a revision of the chronology of the ancient world in relation to the Bible. Why shouldn't we just kind of take for granted that the uh, broad academic consensus, including uh, a number of conservative Christians, basically has it right and then try to find a way to fit the Bible into that? Well, the Bible is, I guess there's two ways of uh, approaching knowledge. For Christians, the Bible is the beginning of knowledge, and the, even the Bible says that to us. <laughs> it says that the, the fear of God is the beginning of all knowledge, and the revelation of God to us is the beginning of us understanding the world that we live in and um, the future. So the Bible substantiates itself, and Jesus said this about himself as well, 
that um, he didn't need to be substantiated. Well, the Bible doesn't need to be substantiated, but if we believe a history that directly contradicts the revealed word of God to us, then what we suffer from is called cognitive dissonance, where we believe two contradictory things that can't both be true. <clears throat> so what we need to do is to revise the chronology of the ancient world to submit it to the truth of scripture and therefore reality. Scripture illuminates ancient history more than vice versa. We don't need Egypt to tell us when King David lived, but scripture can tell us um, <clears throat> effectively how to, how to calibrate the history of Egypt. So that's, that's how I would view it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think for me, when I started looking into this issue a number of years ago, um, it was remarkable seeing the way in which, um, you know, that cognitive dissonance uh, really does kind of dissolve when you're able to have a memory of the ancient past that actually finds the Bible appropriately within it so that you don't have to kind of hold these two parallel narratives at the same time and just try to find some way to make them not contradict each other. So I think it's a really important project. Um, but are, are there any extra biblical reasons um, that you would point out to suspect chronological problems just within kind of the um, the historical uh, paradigm. Absolutely. Uh, I actually categorized them in several. We've got biblical events that are found in the ground, but they're consistently in the wrong archaeological era. Um, we've got missing history, meaning people in the Bible that we cannot find in the ancient world. We've got dark ages, which are missing habitation layers for long periods in Israel, Anatolia, and Greece, meaning there are centuries where we can't date anything to this time frame archaeology can't date anything like say in um in turkey at certain cities in turkey things between 1200 and 800 bc they there's nothing there according to their dating system and then the last thing would be duplicates <clears throat> we will we find that because they serialize parallel lists of dynasties they end up with duplicates of of the same person a couple times or even three times in history sometimes <laughs> Um, so I'll give you more specific details. So the biblical events found in the ground in the wrong archaeological era would include the fall of Jericho. Kathleen Kenyon dug up Jericho and she found the walls had fallen outward and the city had been burned and they didn't even take the grain. Um, all of which are peculiar details found in the Bible. But she dated it to, um, I believe, the end of the early Bronze Age. I could be misquoting her on that, but I think it was second i think it's the uh she put it in uh the second period of the middle bronze age okay. um, but of course she dates that earlier than the, the <clears throat> correct and there's there's also a lot of subjectivity with the archaeologists as to where they put sites within their scale um <clears throat> we find the conquest of canaan She's the one who found lots of cities in Canaan were destroyed, completely destroyed at the end of the early Bronze Age three <clears throat> and the beginning of the Middle Bronze. But she says, we don't know who they were who came and destroyed these cities, but they completely wiped out the culture that had lived there before. But that's placed around 2200 BC by hers, which would be seven centuries before Joshua and his conquest. Um, <clears throat> There's the burned tower of Baal Barith in Shechem. The city of Shechem is where the Israelites made the covenant after they crossed over the river uh, when they entered the land. And later it, it had a city which had a temple and it was kind of a syncretistic temple where they were worshiping the God of the covenant, but they were calling him Baal Barith instead of uh, Yahweh or Jehovah. Um, and th in Judges chapter nine, there's this, the history of uh Gideon's son Abimelech, who had been king, he he came against the people of that city and he burned the temple, um, and he killed basically everybody in there. Um, I may actually be butchering that because I haven't re read that story exactly recently. At any rate, in the Bible, there's this temple of Baal Barith, which has a tower, and the people get burned inside. So the archaeologists dig up this city of Shechem and they find this temple. In fact, I'm going to show you a picture of what they found there. So here they found the temple, which is this 
structure here. And they dated it to the Middle Bronze too. Now later, um, there are a number of Christian archaeologists who are trying to make the Bible work with the conventional archaeology. And so what they did is they said, no, this must be Iron, a Iron Age 2 or Iron Age 1 that this happened because they're trying to pull it down to when they they think the the judges was the beginning of the iron age so they've got to bring this temple down into the iron age to make it fit with the bible but the actual problem is that the iron age needs to be pulled down uh, that's what our position on it is is that it's actually the bronze age that's wrong as to the actual dates of it and that if you pull down the middle bronze too to the roughly 1300 BC, then you're going to get the right alignment. So um, I'll give you another example from that. Obviously, almost all the cities in the Middle East have been destroyed multiple times. So just because you found a destruction doesn't mean it's the destruction named in the Bible. But sometimes there are peculiar details named in the Bible that you do find in the ground, and that should enable you to identify specifically that these events match so in this case this destruction this is a, a pillar in front of that temple that um associates for biblical research thinks that is the pillar that joshua is recorded as having put up in shechem so we agree that we're getting close we're getting close to the right is that integration sorry, is that Bryant woods organization or is that where associates he... associates for biblical research they are some great guys they are um true scholars but their whole their whole position is trying to prove the bible using the accepted conventional history of academia so they take the position that the septuagint chronology is correct that um the flood was around 2200 uh, sorry 3200 bc so they look for egypt to have been founded around 3000 bc um etc but because of that if if they're right they're right but if they're wrong which we think that they are wrong in that chronology then they're looking too late to find things in the bible here's an example associates for biblical research has spent a lot of time um, excavating at shiloh which is where the tabernacle was set up after the conquest the, the tabernacle resided at shiloh for centuries before um, david brought the ark of the covenant into jerusalem and then Solomon built the temple. Well, what they found at Shiloh was what they call an Amorite fortress platform. And then after that, they, they, they're looking, that's in the, the Middle Bronze Age. And then after that, in the Iron Age, they're expecting to find the Israelite occupation. And so most of their focus has been on studying the bones from the Iron Age on that site. But the so-called Amorite fortress, which we would say, because it's Middle Bronze two to Middle Bronze one, that is the original founding of Shiloh by the Israelites. So why would God want his tabernacle put up on a pagan um, worship site? It's far more likely that they set up the tabernacle on virgin ground and built a platform and, and, and that's where they did it. So the expectation that the Israelites were in the Iron Age is causing the, the Christian archaeologists to spend all their time looking in the wrong layers to trying to find King David and Solomon and everybody else. Um, but if they go back to the Middle Bronze Age, it's amazing. These, these uh, people and events start popping up everywhere. So that's mainly what um, I'm trying to prove in my series of papers with Daryl White that is currently um, being published in the Answers Research Journal. So uh, I recognize that that's controversial. What I'm saying is controversial, but it has to be re-examined the foundations of the chronology of, of the ancient Near East and their relationship to the Bible. Uh, would you just um, tell us a little bit more about these uh, the dark ages that are created within the conventional uh, scheme? Um, this is, I think, uh, what is called by scholars the Late Bronze Age Collapse. Um, and you can find whole kind of series of lectures on this alleged period of history. So what's, what are you saying about the existence of these Dark Ages? So the conventional chronology 
is using um, Manitho's list of dynasties in Egypt. And because everyone assumes that that list of dynasties were one after the other in a series, um, they don't recognize that there were parallel dynasties in different cities, especially toward the end of that period, specifically um, from the 18th dynasty downward, you also had, in our view, in, in Emmanuel Velikovsky's view, you had the 22nd and 23rd dynasties, the 25th, the 24th, um, and the 21st. Those were all kind of um, at the same time as the late 18th, 19th, and 20th dynasties. And so if you stretch them out into a series, you end up um, effectively shoving things further back in time than they really happened. And so um, in order to match Egyptian chronology, they push the chronology of Greece back. So for example, the Mycenaean period, um, the Mycenaean archeological age is assumed to be the time of uh, the city of Mycenae and the Trojan War. Um, but that's because they they matched it to the uh, the late 18th dynasty in Egypt. So the Mycenaean connection to the Trojan War, they never dug up something saying uh, Priam was here or <laughs> one of the characters from uh, Homer's Iliad. Instead, they, um, they found pottery that had cartouches or imports from Egypt that matched a dynasty of Egypt that they have placed in the, the thir you know 1200 BC. So they had this debate about this in the late 1800s between Flinders Petrie, who's kind of the father of archaeology, and a guy named Cecil Tour, who was a Greek classicist. And his study of Greek archaeology, he was saying, no, you can't push those things back to the 1200s. The, this is 8th century BC um, material. And so he and uh, Flinders Petrie had a had a debate in a in a journal. They basically went back and forth um, about ten or twelve times, uh, you know, rebutting each other. And <clears throat> we believe Cecil Tour was right, but the uh, academia went with, I guess, the consensus went with Flinders Petrie. So Flinders Petrie was insistent. No, we have to use Manitho's dynasties in order. And therefore, you this has to, we, we're sure we know we know that Egyptian history is is this happened at this time, and therefore, they effectively force the chronologies of Greece, the Hittites and Anatolia, and um, and Israel and uh, Syria and, and Palestine. All those things got shoved back in time to fit Petri's Egyptian chronology, and and Petri is basically using Manitho in a series, and that that's. That, in our view, created a fictional Bronze Age collapse. There was no Bronze Age collapse. Um, the the Dark Age that they used to cause, say, oh, there was a Bronze Age collapse because there's nothing in these cities for centuries later. No, the, there's no there's no missing um, uh, in the habitation layers. They say that there's nothing here. If that city had been abandoned for centuries, there would be like two feet of forest soil where trees grow on top and dust. And, you know, that just happens everywhere on earth. There's constantly new um, soil and humus being deposited, although in some places it's eroded, but usually it's being deposited. So if you have a city that's dormant and abandoned, it's not going to be that nothing happens there. You're going to see the kind of soil that grows in the forest and it is deposited by a forest. But they don't find that. There's not a missing, there's not a soil layer between, you know, um, these two sections of Greek history, the Mycenaean and, and then the later um, early classical period. So we believe that this is a basically an artifact of Petri's great mistake. And we aren't the first. So there's a group of us called revisionists, and I'd say, um, that the first of those revisionists was Emmanuel Velikovsky. Would you like uh, us to talk about that? Well, yeah. Um, you know, Velikovsky is a you know controversial figure. Most people, maybe not within this context, but most people who've heard of him may have heard of him from the Velikovsky affair, which involved Carl Sagan, and and uh, he knew Albert Einstein uh, and corresponded with him actually for a period of time. But, but tell us a little bit about Velikovsky. Who was he, and what's his significance for? Uh, 
a chronological revision. So Emanuel Velikotsky was a Jewish Russian expatriate who came to the United States, uh, probably, I don't know the exact date, but I think it was in the 20s. Um, he was associated with Sigmund Freud. He was also, a, he was a psychologist. And obviously Freud was one of the founders of the discipline of psychology, if you can call it a discipline. Um, <clears throat> he, being Jewish, and even though Freud was Jewish too, Freud had suggested that Akhenaten, who was the heretic pharaoh of Egypt, who is, he is said to have believed in monotheism, but it's not really true. He taught that Akhenaten, I'm sorry, that Aten was the sun god, that that was the true god, and he forbade the worship of Amun, which was the traditional Egyptian uh, solar god and the main Egy god of the Egyptian state. So he built a new city, new capital, new temple, and he suppressed the worship of Amun. And therefore, archaeologists interpreted that as monotheism, which is not what it was. Um, well, Freud said that Akhenaten's monotheism was the inspiration of Moses. Well, that worked because in the conventional chronology, Akhenaten would have been uh, a few centuries before Moses, uh, roughly almost the same time. Um, well, I think it was this claim that set Velikovsky on his journey because he believes the Torah. He's a Jew. He He's an Orthodox Jew, and he believes the Torah is true. And he wanted to prove the Bible is true. So he sets out to study ancient history, and he wrote a series of books called uh, Ages in Chaos. He also um, he wrote a book also on catastrophism, where he was suggesting, you know, that buried in the flood lay the, the fossil record is the result of catastrophes like Noah's flood. But he also postulated a kind of weird um, idea of that the planets weren't, weren't always in their same orbits and that Venus was coming too close sometimes. And so the, the people started worshiping Venus because bad things would happen when Venus was too close. And he had the same theory also for Mars. And that, unfortunately, those ideas so offended the scientific establishment that his history was, his history books, which were quite good in our opinion, um, were just discarded out of hand. In fact, the scientists were so determined that he should be shut down that they tried to get his book um, basically banned. And they tried to ban him from speaking at universities. So he really was in a lot of ways a martyr for the cause of ancient history. Um, but he was the first one in 2000 years to question the Egyptian history that had been handed down to us and to say, maybe this isn't right. And so he, in his books, he, he suggested that um, the Hyksos invasion of Egypt was roughly at the time that the Amalekites invaded Egypt after the Exodus. He, he then suggested that um, King Saul, when he fought against uh, Agag, the Amalekite, that was the same battle that King um, Kamos or, Am or his younger brother Amos won, fought against King Apophis or Apop of Egypt. He said Agag and Apop are the same person. And we actually agree with that. Um, there's significant evidence that that was correct. So he then found a number of synchronisms between the 18th dynasty of Egypt, which had been founded by Kamos and his younger brother Amos I. And that's the um, first uh, first dynasty of the new kingdom. That's right. Um, and he found synchronisms between them and King uh, King Saul, King David, King Solomon, and then later even down to King Ahab. Um, well, of course, the conventional chronology places the 18th dynasty um, really back around 1500 BC. So that would be centuries earlier. And he was laughed out of the house. Um, but some Christian chronologists said, hey, wait a minute, he's got a, he's got a good point. And so they, um, what he effectively did was he spawned 50, actually seven, 70 years now of um, revisionism. And ancient history revisionists have been saying, okay, 
maybe he was right. Maybe he was wrong about some of these things. And they have been taking apart the assumptions behind ancient history and trying different ways of putting it back together. So um, this happened, uh, I guess it started in the eighties. There was a guy named David Roll, who was a rock musician who decided to become an archeologist. And he started a group that became later known as the new chronology, but the original group was called the society for interdisciplinary studies. And and that, a lot of people today are, uh, perhaps most familiar with Roll through his work on the uh, Patterns of Evidence uh, series of documentaries. So uh, Roll is actually how I and a number of other people uh, were introduced to kind of maybe the more academic side of, uh, of, of revised chronology. Um, was he uh, connected at all with Velikovsky? He, I think he met Velikovsky. Um, they had a conference called in Glasgow, which they called the Glasgow School where a bunch of uh, historians came together and they examined Velikovsky's claims and they they ultimately rejected Velikovsky's chronology. But they said, he, but he's kind of right. We, instead of moving history down by about 700 years, which is what Velikovsky's chronology does, we need to move it down by 300 years. And so um, that began um, a fork. So the Society for Interdisciplinary Studies pretty much continued looking at Velikovsky's work as well as others, whereas the new chronology school started by David Roll, they basically set to work of creating an academic foundation for what he calls the new chronology. Um, and so he's like halfway in between Velikovsky and the academic position. Um, he has one Oxford professor, Dr. Bimson, who is in basically in his camp there. And Peter James is a journalist who also wrote a, a couple books uh, along these lines. And he is influenced by Roll, although his chronology is a bit different as well. So we would consider all these guys as fellow revisionists. And there have been about at least 50 of them since Velikovsky. There have been eight peer-reviewed journals founded by these guys. Uh, there have been many conferences, books. And so the mainline chronology, the main uh, the academic chronology is, is pretty much ignorant of the existence of this work that's been done, this research for the last uh, 50 years. But David Roll really uh, deserves a lot of credit for having um, supercharged the, the work, getting people enthused and interested in uh, this problem and working on this problem. So I have a great respect and appreciation for David Roll, even though I disagree with um, his Egyptian chronology. I think he he's done some great work, including his identification in the Siberian King list of Kush as Meskia Gasher and Nimrod as Enmerkar is great because that's, that's a very solid um, synchronism that he found there. So currently... I think despite having all these people working on this problem, um, they haven't been able to come to consensus. So we have a bunch of people who all have different opinions. And I think part of the reason for that is they've mostly focused on the late period, which would be from about um, 1000 BC down to the time of Alexander the Great. Egyptian chronology... Um, the dynasties that were ruling then were not strong, uh, especially after, I guess, um, about 800 BC. The late period dynasties were not superpowers. Um, they had a couple wars here and there, but they didn't leave for us a lot of synchronisms that enable us to anchor them to external kingdoms. Whereas the older periods of Egyptian history in our study, we find that it's actually a lot easier to, to convincingly build a chronology of the the old and middle kingdoms of Egypt than it is to build a convincing chronology of the the late period, which would be dynasties 20 through through uh, 30. So, so that's uh, kind of where, where we are now. So uh, with Velikovsky's scheme, as I understand it, there's kind of two major pillars. There's the um, Ages and Chaos, which was the original book he put out. Pillar, which is about the movement of dynasty 18 to around the time of the united monarchy um and kind of bims and james i don't know if Roll was involved at this point 
but the 1978 Glasgow conference kind of wanted to substantiate that. And then there was Ramses II and his time, which um, separates Dynasty 19, which is obviously where you get Ramses II, who's in popular culture often associated with the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Um, Velikovsky wanted to move that away from Dynasty 18 and actually have it post-date um, the third intermediate period uh, dynasties, to put it in the late period. Um, what what uh, we're going to have a whole discussion on on this topic because I think your take on this is very interesting. Um, uh, what what role did that really play in um, shaping the rejection of, of Velikovsky's broader scheme? Um, the rejection was based on what they thought they knew were synchronisms to the other kingdoms. So um, the conventional chronology, they believe that uh, Horemheb immediately followed um, the Amarna set, was what I call them, Akhenaten and then his sons, um, Smenkere and Tutankhamun. They think that, and then there was A, the fa A-Y, the father-in-law, and then they think that Horemheb was immediately after him. And then they think that Ramses I of Dynasty 19 was appointed vizier by Horemheb. The problem is there's no direct evidence of any synchronism between uh, Horemheb and Ramses. Um, can you pause for a moment? So uh, tell us then a bit about the current state of affairs uh, within the uh, so-called revisionist community. Um, where do things stand outside of the conventional model? I think that we have we have about six different models who all agree disagree with each other. Uh, so in addition to Roll, you have a guy named uh, Jim Riley, who did some he did some good work. Um, you have another guy named Eric Aitchison, uh, an Australian who has written a, a, a book about Velikovsky and a ton of papers, and he has he has a model. He also um, insists that. You cannot put the 19th dynasty um, 200 years after Akhenaten, that it has to be immediately after. You have, so you've got six or seven of these different guys with different models, and they each kind of focus on one thing, and that's their key synchronism. And unfortunately, that has not led to consensus. So, <clears throat> in my view, that means none of the models is convincing. We can tell that they're kind of in the right ballpark. They might be right on a certain point, but they don't have an, an overarching consistent model that works for the entire chronology of Egypt. And so that's where um, my work with Daryl White is, um, we're using an approach, it's called the Chronological Framework of Ancient History. And what we did was we, we systematically went through all the ancient sources we could find looking for ancient historians saying it was this many years from event A to event B. And then we um, we look for two or three witnesses from the ancient sources. If two or three witnesses agree with each other um, on that this event happened at this time, then we call that a triangulation. Um, and so we started, we, we basically built first the database of the durations from those sources. And then we started building anchor points <clears throat> where the durations agreed with each other. And what came, what dropped out of that, about 400 durations that we found, is what we call the the chronological framework, and it effectively synchronizes ancient history of the ancient kingdoms together with each other, and it agrees with Usher's chronology of the Bible. And we didn't actually, at the very beginning, we didn't assume Usher's chronology was right. We thought it was right. Um, but we were kind of surprised to find how closely the ancient kingdoms agree with Usher, uh, at, at least on the biblical chronology dates, not his Egyptian dates. His Egyptian dates were all wrong. So <clears throat> we've worked on this now for, I guess, about 15 years. And we've got 20 papers which build the framework. And um, we submitted them to a number of journals, creationist journals, and we got rejected several different times. Um, before Answers in Genesis, finally, um, they apparently saw value in it. And so um, we've been going through the peer review process at the Answers Research Journal. And uh, the first two papers are out. And it might take a couple of years, maybe three or four years to get all 20 papers through because 
peer review takes a long time. And when it comes to ancient history, the peer reviewers all disagree with each other. <laughs> so it's hard to find anybody who thinks your paper should be published. It's, it's a lot of work. Um, so that's that's kind of where we are now personally, where chronology as a, as a uh, discipline is. You basically have associates for biblical research are promoting the mainstream chronology and trying to find connections. Um, and then you've got five or six different of the revisionists with their different models. And, and really, to be honest, the mainstream chronology itself has three different, they, they, they have the, the high, low and middle chronologies. So even they don't agree with each other. So it's not like um, the revisionists are the only ones who have these problems. Um, so where should we be going in the future as a, as a community? Um, uh, what do revisionists need to do in order to maybe uh, overcome uh, some of this, uh, uh, I don't know, chaos among all these different models? Is there a way to reach a consensus? Um, if you look at other things in history that have resulted in changes of consensus, um, one example that comes to mind is plate tectonics. So back in the, the 40s, they had a completely different model of the earth, the geologists, and I guess it was probably the 50s or 60s when um, the gentleman proposed the plate tectonic theory. And it was heavily controversial and debated, and he he eventually, um, by the end of his life, the mainstream had accepted plate tectonics, but it wasn't because he changed their minds. It was because he he was convincing to the next generation of young people who read his papers <clears throat> and the old people eventually died off who, who could never let go of their, their model. Um, and so once they all died off, his, his uh, model of plate tectonics became the consensus. And I think that that's probably what we're gonna have to see here is that number one, we've, we've got to develop a systematic review of the ancient evidence to construct a framework of ancient history rather than just tweaking the model that we inherited from Manitho or picking a couple of synchronisms that we like and then building around it, which are the, those are the two things that seem to be the dominant methods right, right now. And I think once a framework has been developed systematically in that way, which would be more scientific, really, it's more uh, developing a method and using an approach and using all the data. And then once you've done that, then you need to use that model, that framework, and then revise the three age model of stratigraphy, the stone age, bronze age, and iron age, they need to be corrected. And of course, that's also gonna result in correcting the carbon dating curve. So it's a huge, it's almost, it's almost uh, bigger than you know, Galileo and, and Johannes Kepler coming up with their, um, their heliocentric model of the solar system it's a huge amount of work and there's a huge edifice of academia that's standing against you that not only does do they have their model of history they have their carbon dating they have their dendrochronology and all of it seems to support their model except for the contradictions within their model <clears throat> and it's, it's a huge amount of work someone's going to have to do it and the only the only way it's ever going to actually take root is if it can convince the next generation. If you can write a series of books that convince the next generation, then eventually you might prevail. So that's what we're trying to do. And we, Daryl White and I recognize that our particular work may end up falling by the wayside, like, like a lot of the other people who've done this. <laughs> um, and this goes all the way back, you know, it seems like in the church history, uh, a number of the church fathers have written universal histories. So Eusebius wrote his, um, Julius Africanus. Um, there was a uh, uh, Moses of Corinne. Um, there have just been John Malalas. <laughs> it's like every two centuries, a Christian tries to do what Eusebius did, what Usher did, a, a universal history. And so we are trying it, our hand at it as well. And um, hopefully we will arrive at a strong enough model that ours will last, but I guess that remains to be seen. 
Well, thanks so much, Ken, for uh, coming on. I'm really looking forward to uh, giving you a platform to um, explore this model in uh, more detail. And I think our next discussion is going to be on uh, uh, euhemerism. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, euhemerus, yes. Yeah, and so uh, it's going to be on the roots of ancient mythology and what it can uh, possibly tell us about the early history of mankind uh, soon after the flood. So um, I'm very much looking forward to that. Uh, and thanks so much for coming on. All right. Thank you very much, Seraphim. God be with you. Have a good one.